Uh, we had asked uh, in the church that if you wanted to send Debbie a card or, or a, uh, just a, a, an acknowledgement that there were, you could mail that to the church. There also are some baskets that are out in the foyer. If, you'd like, if you brought a card and, and you don't get a chance to see her, you can leave those there and we'll be glad to get them to her. Um, as I said, we had initially thought about trying to have some kind of reception. It's really hard to have a reception indoors um, with, with a bunch of people in a confined environment. And so uh, several months ago, we began to think about what would it look like when we start opening back up. And, and I thought, man, people are just going to be ready just to, if, if we can't get next to each other, maybe we can just get somewhere in the same vicinity and let's enjoy a meal together. So we're going to be having a cookout this afternoon at 530. I know many of you have already uh, registered to come to it. I think we have over 100 people registered. I, um, I texted my personal meteorologist about an hour and a half ago and asked him about what the weather report looks like around 530. And he said, I think you guys should be okay about then. Uh, so I have gotten that on good authority. Uh, that's, not a, that's not an all clear. Meteorologists won't do that. But I at least got uh, a, an idea that we feel like we're not going to have anything to prevent us from being able to have a cookout in the event that we do have rain, uh, we will just move it indoors into the gym. Uh, we have some guys that will be cooking out hamburgers, and we have a team that's going to be putting all that together in boxes, so we, we will have those available for you. You won't be having to come and serve yourself or anything like that. But it's just going to be good to be able to get the church family together. One of the, you know, getting church back on campus is great, but even then, we have a 9 o'clock crowd and a 10.30 crowd. And the 10.30 crowd doesn't get here until about 10.25, and the, and the 9 o'clock crowd leaves at 10.05. And so you're not seeing each other at church. You don't, you don't know who all is here. This is just going to be an opportunity for us at least to be able to have some of the church together and to be able to say hello to one another. So we invite you to come and join us at 5.30. We're going to be in the parking lot in the areas under the trees out by the outback. So please come and, and join us at that time. As I said, if you've got a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open up to Psalm 96 this morning as we look at the subject of declare His glory among the nations. We are going through the Psalms this summer and just looking at selected Psalms, Psalms that come from different genres, and today's Psalm is a, is a praise Psalm. It's a worship Psalm, and you'll see that as we read in just a moment you'll see that the, the main impetus on this psalm is a call to worship. It's a call for the, worship, for, for the people of God to worship the Lord. Now, Psalm 96 is an interesting psalm because your Bible probably does not have an author attributed to it. It probably just has a title. My Bible says, Worship in the Splendor of Holiness is a title. Um, but we have real good uh, reason to believe that David wrote this psalm because... David actually sang this psalm or first introduced this psalm to the, to the Jewish people in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. We have the, most of this content of this psalm repeated there in, in 1 Chronicles 16. And the Bible tells us that this was a song that David sang on the occasion of the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed to the tent that David had constructed there in Jerusalem the city of David. Now this was a monumentally important event in the life of Israel because the ark represented God's presence among his people. If you've read the Bible and you've read the Old Testament, you know that when the people were wandering through the wilderness, the ark of the covenant would go with them and it would reside within a tabernacle and people would, would look to the, to the tabernacle where the ark dwelt because it represented God's presence 
It not only represented God's presence among his people, it represented God's rule and God's reign among his people. But the Bible tells us in the book of Samuel that, that the, uh, the, the Israelites were at war with the Philistines. And some of the leaders of Israel at that time made a mistake and thought that it would be a good idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant out to the battlefield, that somehow or another the presence of God would ensure victory. And it was a bold move. It was a move that was not something that was honoring to God. God had gave specific instructions about the Ark and how it was to be handled. And it was mishandled. And as a result of that, it was captured by the Philistines who right after that began to deal with all kinds of plagues and problems. And so they gave the, they gave the ark back to the Israelites, but it didn't go back to where it had been originally. It basically went into a storage place for 20 years. And so for 20 years, God's presence among his people was not properly demonstrated with the Ark of the Covenant. David began to feel something was wrong about that, and he wanted to bring the Ark back into the city that he was constructing there for the kingdom of God. And he wanted to bring it in Jerusalem. So he had this tent that was built and brought the ark back from the house of Obed into Jerusalem. And when he did, he first sang this psalm that we are about to read. As I said a second ago, this is a classic psalm of worship or song of praise. It is a psalm which calls upon all the peoples of the earth to worship the one true living God. And that worship, as he says here, is about the people of God celebrating and acknowledging the rule and the reign of God among them. And so with that in mind, let's read Psalm 96. Psalm 96 verse 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people's with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and his people in faithfulness. Reading through that psalm, you see clearly this is a psalm directing us as the people of God to worship Him for many, many different reasons. The opening verse of, of Psalm 96 tells us to sing, and it doesn't just tell us to sing, it tells us to sing three times. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. I think you get the idea that David is telling us here in verse 1 that we need to be singing, right? We need to be singing to the Lord. And this is not just random repetitiveness. This is not just 
David's Old Testament version of a modern praise song that sings the same thing over and over and over again. That's not what he's doing here. What he's doing here is when the Bible repeats things for us, it does so for emphasis. And David is emphasizing here that it's incumbent upon the people of God to sing, to declare praise to him. It denotes the act, uh, the importance of the act of singing. And it represents the complete worship of Yahweh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three times we are directed to sing to the triune God that we worship. And again, in verses 7 and 8, we see another phrase repeated three times. We see the phrase, ascribe to the Lord, repeated three times. It's reminding us of the incredible importance of worship for the people of God. But before we talk about what this psalm teaches us about worship, anytime I seek to try to talk to the church about worship and what we mean by worship, I always need to take time to try to break down a few common misconceptions that we have currently in the church about what worship is and about worship's purpose in our lives. When I ask people to describe the word worship, when I say the word worship, what do you think of? I think immediately we begin to think of several things. And they're not all unbiblical things. They're not all wrong, but they're not all adequately sufficient enough to describe worship. For instance, we think of worship, most of the time we think of singing, right? And, and that is a very important element of worship. But we, we categorize a certain type of singing as worship, and sometimes we'll say, I like the worship today, and I also like the sermon or the preaching, as if the preaching of God's Word doesn't have anything to do with worship. But the preaching of God's Word is part of the element of worship. Or we say, you know what, I, I really like the worship, and, or when we get together, we, we worship and we also give an offering. Well, giving an offering is an act of worship. And so worship is not just confined to singing, which oftentimes we think. Another thing is we often think of worship and we think of the worship center or the sanctuary where we go to worship. And we think of worship as something that is done many times in, a, in, a, in an environment, in a building like this. But worship expands beyond that. Worship is also a personal practice that we take part in in our lives as well. So when we say the word worship, what are we talking about? At its heart, the biblical concept of worship means to give praise, glory, and honor to the one true living God for who He is and what He has done. Let me say that again. At its heart, when we talk about worship, we mean to give praise, glory, and honor to the one true living God for who He is and what He has done. It means that when we worship, we affirm God's worth and we demonstrate through singing, through praying, through giving, and through many other elements that our God is worthy of praise. The word worship comes from a Latin word, which means to show worth or value. And so ultimately, worship is showing worth and value to God. Now, our understanding of what we often know as worship in the church is really shaped by our personal experiences or lack of them in the corporate worship services that we've attended. Most of us in here, and probably most people that are watching on the live stream today, have probably attended church for a long time. 
And many of us in here have probably attended a church very similar to Central Park. And our experiences for probably decades have looked very much like what we do every single Sunday here, where we have some songs that we sing and we have a sermon time and we go through some different things. And sometimes we have a choir and we have a choir that sings or we have special music. And some people go to a a church that maybe has a little bit more of a southern gospel flavor and their worship has much more of a, of a gospel influence in that area. Others go to, go to churches that have more of a high church liturgical form of worship, but our understanding of worship is really shaped by our personal experience or lack of it. If we invited somebody who'd never been in a church before, and I think of some people that I've known, even some people in my family, who didn't attend church until they were really late in their life. And when they walk into something like this and they try to sing the songs, we're singing songs that we've sung before. Many of us in here have sung the song, Shout to the Lord. We've sung that dozens and dozens and dozens of times in our life. But there are some people who, if they walked in this building, they wouldn't know what that song is. They wouldn't be familiar with the words. They wouldn't be familiar with the tune. And so for this reason, most of our idea of worship is shaped by personal preference and personal familiarity. And what worship looks like for you will greatly depend on the culture that you live in and the religious tradition that you grew up in. As I said a second ago, some traditions have strong, high liturgical practices where they, they go through rote and routine every single week. And every single week there are certain things that are done at certain portions of the worship service. And there are certain phrases or prayers that are repeated at certain times. And these liturgical practices are done repetitively to, to reinforce certain scriptural truths in their lives. Some churches choose to use music and instrumentation that is primarily a, a piano and an organ or maybe an orchestra. Some other don't even have a piano. Some just have a keyboard and a, and a praise band. Other traditions celebrate more emotional responses to worship. As you know, I, I told the first service, you know, I, I always think it would be interesting to, if we can get all the church gathered back together again and have a full house, is to just kind of put a camera up here in the baptistry one Sunday and secretly tape our congregation as we worship. And what we would sing if we taped our congregation as we worship is we would see uh, most people standing. Some people can't stand during worship because of, their, because of their, their, their health challenges. But most people standing. The vast majority standing with their hands in front of them or to their side. Um, probably 75% or more of the people singing, some people singing a little more expressively than others who would sing very, very lightly like this. And, and every once in a while, somebody might get really religious and raise their hand every once in a while. But for most of us, we kind of grew up in a tradition where you're more you know, confined expressively in, in your worship. Is that bad? No, it's not bad. It's just, it's just what we grew up in. It's our familiarity. But I would love to be able to take all of the people of Central Park and put you on an airplane and fly you to Uganda and take you for one Sunday to go to worship with the Acholi people at Livingstone's Church. Because when you go to worship there, it is a completely different thing than what we see on Sunday morning here in Alabama. You see, in their culture, it's very common for them, not just in religious things, it's very, it's very common in their culture for them to sing and to dance and to celebrate things as an act of joy. 
And so we'll have, we'll have you know, 50, 60-year-old church members there in, in Living Stones Christian Church. And when it comes time to sing, they're, they're dancing. They're moving their feet back and forth. They're, 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 they're raising their hands and they're doing this. And they're singing it. Some of them will move around and they'll, 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 they'll jump around and, 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 and raise their hands. And then every once in a while, one of my favorite things, whenever I take a team over there, is, is at some point within the first three to four minutes of the first song, one of our ladies at Livingstone's Christian Church will yell out this really guttural yell that comes from the bottom of their gut. I mean, it is, it is this, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and it just resonates over everything. And it's always funny because that's, that's an expression of joy in their culture. For them, to, for them to scream and yell that is a way for them to express that they are happy, that they are joyful. And they'll yell that out and it will freak out every single Anglo-American that's in the building that day. And that's just because that's their culture and their heritage. And for many of us, when we think about worship, worship is primarily what we're familiar with. And that brings many misconceptions about worship. So before we get to this, this text this morning and what it teaches us about worship, we need to understand some misconceptions. Like, for instance, worship is not to be primarily centered around satisfying the personal preferences of the congregation for entertainment or enjoyment. This is not in your notes. I'm just kind of telling you some observations. Worship is not to primarily be centered around satisfying the personal preferences of the congregation to be entertained or to enjoy. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy worship music or that we shouldn't be personally affirmed by engaging in worship. I think, I think it's very appropriate for us to sing songs that move us emotionally and spiritually and that we should enjoy the songs that we sing. But the personal preference of the congregants is not to be the starting point for worship. And so when David is, is selecting music to sing in accordance with scriptures that I may be preaching, while David wants to be able to sing songs that you know and songs that are familiar, songs that you enjoy, his number one task that day is not, what songs can I pick out that I'll get the least amount of complaints about today? Or the best amount of compliments? That's not his primary decision. Well, all my people, they love this song. We haven't sang it in a few months. We'll sing it because I know that when we sing this, there's going to be people that are going to enjoy that. Worship is not about entertaining the saints. It's not about accommodating personal preferences. Another misconception about worship is there is no one right way to worship, but there are many wrong ways to worship. There is no one way of worship that is right, but there are many ways that we can worship that can be unscriptural. You know, the Quakers, we don't see many of them anymore, but the Quakers back a couple of hundred years ago, they would go to worship and they would sing songs, not songs like we have with the kind of instrumentation that we have, but they would sing songs. And sometimes during the proclamation of God's Word, the Quakers would be so moved by their understanding of the holiness of God and their reverence for Him, that they would begin to shake in worship. That's how they got their name Quakers. They would begin to shake as a, as a, as a sign of their reverence for God. But if we started having someone start shaking all of a sudden in the middle of the worship service, we'd stop everything and probably call an ambulance. 
Does that mean that the Quakers were wrong? No, there's no, nothing wrong with that. There's no one right way to worship, but there are many wrong ways to worship. And another misconception is that true worship is purely just a personal experience. That worship, because it is so driven by preference and it is such an individualistic thing for us to worship God, <coughs> that worship is purely a personal experience. And because of that, there is great and sometimes dangerous emphasis within the current evangelical church on the private and personal experience of people in worship. There's, a, there's an undue emphasis on how people feel and how people are moved and how to do things in worship, either visually with lighting or, or with certain songs to try to create a, a personal worship experience. And sometimes, in the midst of this, unsafe and unscriptural emphasis can be placed on how worship affects and edifies the individual as more important than whether what the individual is singing is actually in accordance with sound doctrine. I've been in some places before where we have sung songs and I have seen thousands of people raising their hands and emotionally connected to a song which teaches something that is unscriptural. We need to be careful about thinking that just because people enjoy something, that that's more important than what we sing is actually in accordance with what God's Word says. Against this backdrop, we want to look today at Psalm 96 and see what it teaches us about true worship and how it teaches us to worship God rightly. And with that, we basically see this central truth that Psalm 96 is telling us this morning. And that truth is this. That true worship is focused on rightly praising the Lord for who He is and publicly declaring His glory to all peoples. As I said, there's no one right way to worship. There are many different forms that we can utilize, but true worship, worship that is biblical, is focused on rightly praising the Lord for who He is and publicly declaring His glory as we gather together as His people to all peoples. Psalm 96 vividly demonstrates a relationship which we will be talking about between worship and missions. I think many people would say in the church that worship is something we do on Sunday and missions is something we do when we send missionaries or send money or go on mission trips, but the reality of it is is that there is a direct relationship between the worship of God's people and the missional advancement of the gospel. True worship has a missional element to it. And we need to understand that true worship is not a personal engagement that ends when you leave the congregational gathering here in just a moment. Worship doesn't end because we finished singing the last song and walked out the door. But that true worship propels us to declare the glory of God among the nations. If we really believe what we sing in this place, then it should propel us to take the content of that songs, of those songs, to every person that we come into contact with. To illustrate this, I want to read from you 
an excerpt from John Piper's phenomenal work called Let the Nations Be Glad. I've used this quote many times before, but I don't think anybody says it any better than John Piper does. In chapter 1 of his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper starts that book with these words. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Missions is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of the glory of God. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. There's a direct relationship between a church that worships rightly and a church that declares the glory of God among the nations. And so I want us to see three truths this morning, three primary truths from this text. And the first of those is the global summons of all people to worship. We see a global summons to worship. Psalm 96 begins with what we would describe as a call to worship. A call to worship is what we do in a church many times when we begin a worship gathering. And before COVID-19, our choir would come up here and they would They would start us off with a chorus that was going to be something that we sang later on as a congregation. And when they do that, that is the call for all of us to understand that the time of worship has come. The time has come and God's people have been called to worship. Sometimes we'll do a call of worship by standing up and reading a scripture verse. David does that many times. He'll say, the, the Bible says in such and such, and it's a call for us to direct our attention that the time has come for the people of God to worship her king. And this is a call to worship. And this call to worship begins with David saying in verse 1, Sing to the Lord a new song. Isn't that interesting? David says, let's sing, but let's, let's sing a new song. It's not that old songs are bad. It's not that David said, we don't really want to go back and sing all these old songs, but it's a reminder that the greatness of God demands that his people continually declare that greatness in newer and newer ways. So when David says, sing to the Lord a new song, he's saying, let's come up with another way. Let's come up with another anthem to declare the greatness of our God. We can never exhaust all the greatness and glory of who God is. We can never compile all the acceptable songs of worship into one hymnal in such a way that we can say, that is all that can be said or sung about our God. We're to sing to the Lord a new song. This is one of the reasons why I love and appreciate the idea of introducing new songs into our corporate worship services. But as I said a second ago, one of the challenges with that is that we're so programmed to sing things that we are familiar with, right? And so when we come to church and we sing a familiar song like Holy, 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 those of us that have been in church all of our life, we know that song. We we can sing it without looking at the words on the screen. We know what to sing. And we're familiar with it and it resonates with us because we've sung it so many times. But what happens sometimes in the church is we, we, we introduce a new song and people go, I don't really like that song. And we sang that new song today. I, 
And I didn't really, I didn't know what they were singing. I didn't really like it. And, and sometimes, I'm sure David, being, being in music ministry, has had plenty of conversations of, I didn't really like that song we sang Sunday. Or they'll come up to me and say, Preacher, you know, we sang that new song. And I try to, as graciously as possible, say, We weren't singing to you. <laughs> we, we weren't singing to you. We were singing to Him. And the Bible says that we're to sing to the Lord a new song. And so we need to be introducing new songs of worship into our lives continually because there's no way that we could ever possibly exhaust all the songs that adequately declare the greatness and the glory of God. We also see that this call to worship is not only extended to the chosen people of God, the Israelites in this case, but that this invitation to worship is extended to every person on this planet. It's a global summons to worship. The psalmist says, sing to the Lord all the earth. It's a universal invitation. And in your notes, I put this, all peoples, all peoples are summoned to worship God for who He is and what He has done. Because God is God, He alone deserves the worship, the praise, the glory, the honor, and the adoration of all people. They tell us that there are currently a little over 7 billion people on this planet. Every single one of those people was created in the image of God. Every single one of those people were created by God to give glory to God. And Jesus Christ deserves the praise of all 7 billion of them. And every person is on this planet has been given a God-given predisposition to show value, praise, and worth for something. And every person is called, according to the psalmist, to direct that predisposition to worship the one true living God, the God of all creation, the God who sits enthroned in the heavens. All are called and summoned to worship God. Every person on this planet is a worshiper. Everyone. Because all of us have an innate ability and desire and propensity to give value to something or someone. Every person is a worshiper. The problem is not every person worships God. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 1 tells us that mankind has exchanged the glory of God for the lesser glories of the created order. And as such, sin has distorted our spiritual wiring and causes us to give the worth and the praise and the allegiance that belongs to God to things that are lesser than Him. The problem is not that you and I are not wired to worship God. The problem is that for most people in our world, we choose to worship other things than God. I put this in your notes. The great battle in our world is not a conflict of ideologies. The great battle in our world is a war for our worship. You see, our ideologies in life simply reveal the objects of our worship. And the conflict in our world today is not a battle between equally valid religious or personal beliefs. That's a popular idea in our culture is that, is that every religion teaches us something about God and that all religions are right as long as they work for that person and that God can be found in, in every religious tradition, but the problem is not a conflicting ideal between equally valid religious ideologies. The conflict is that Satan has created other objects 
which direct our worship and praise away from the one true living God. So what does worship have to do with missions? Well, missions is simply inviting others to rightly worship the Lord. Missions is simply inviting other people to rightly worship the Lord. The psalmist says in verse 3, declare His glory among the nations. And missions is simply declaring the glory of God among the nations in such a way that they would see Him and turn to Him in faith. And verses 2 and 3 also tell us about what the content of our worship should look like, about what we should sing, that, that God is concerned about what kinds of songs we sing, and that we should sing songs that tell of God's salvation, that declare God's glory, and that declare His marvelous works. These should form the content of our singing. And so we see a global summons of all people to worship and that God alone deserves the worship of all peoples. But secondly, we see, not only are we summoned to worship, but we see the glorious object of our worship. We see the glorious one whom we are called to worship. And beginning in verse 4, we see that why God alone deserves our worship. Verse 4 says, For great is the Lord, and because He is great, He is greatly to be praised. The word great distinguishes God from all other things in creation. His greatness means that He is highly exalted. He is greater in beauty and majesty and strength than all other gods. As a matter of fact, the psalmist says all other gods are worthless idols. All other gods are worthless idols. He reminds us that other gods are all the creation of men. You see, man, because he has rejected the knowledge of God and has exchanged the glory of God for lesser glories, man creates the gods that he is most comfortable with. And that god may be a stone or a wooden idol in the African bush, or that God may be a cultural invisible deity such as money, power, sex, or fame. But whatever the case, man creates the gods that he can control and the gods that serve him. But our God is great and he is above all other gods. He is not created by any man. He is separate and greater than all creation itself. This God created the heavens and the earth. This God created the very substances by which fallen man forms his own personal gods. And the great battle in our world, as I said, is not a conflict of ideologies, but a war for who or what we will worship. And when we worship something other than God, we will always give ultimate value and worth to something less significant, less satisfying, and less worthy. God is great and greatly to be praised. But secondly, we see His reign is universal and everlasting. We worship God because His reign is universal and everlasting. The psalmist says, The Lord made the heavens. Verse 10 says, He established and rules the whole earth. Verse 11 says, Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that feel, fills it. We read that this God that we worship rules over the fields and the forest. And the psalmist is telling us that there isn't an inch on this planet or an atom in this universe that is not under the sovereign rule and reign of Almighty God. 
The psalmist says in verse 8, to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. And the reason we do that is because there is only one being in the universe who deserves that level of glory. It's a reminder to us that our God, the God that we sang to just a few minutes ago, rules the city of Decatur. That our God rules the nation that we know as the United States of America. And our God rules the 6,000 unreached and unengaged people groups who have still never heard about Him. Our God rules every star that we see in the sky and the millions of miles between each one. His rule is universal and everlasting. And because His rule is universal, and because all people have exchanged the glory of God for lesser glories, then we see thirdly that He is the righteous judge of all people. Because our God is great and greatly to be praised, greater than all other gods, and His reign is universal and everlasting, we are called to give worship to Him. But because we don't give worship to Him, because there are billions of people on our planet who do not worship God rightly right now, that one day God will be the righteous judge of all people. The psalmist says in verse 10, He will judge the peoples with equity. And in verse 13, He will, judge to, he will come to judge the earth and He will judge the world in righteousness and His people in faithfulness. The Bible makes it clear that all people will be judged one day for how they have rejected the clear knowledge of God and their failure to worship Him because they have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of lesser things that have appealed to us. All people will one day stand before God as judge. And He will judge them with fairness and equity. But the good news of the gospel is that not only is God the righteous judge of all people, but He is the glorious Savior of all who will repent of their sin and trust in His Son to save them from their sin. He is not only the righteous judge, He is the glorious Savior. And this is why the psalmist says in verse 2 that we are to tell of His salvation from day to day. That when we gather together as the church, we are continually declaring our God saves and we are continually inviting the nations of the world to join in the glorious salvation song of the redeemed. But let's see real quickly, number three, let's see the righteous response in worship. Let's see the response of those who are the righteous ones, those who are God's people in worship. Psalm 96 is a worship song for the people of God and the Old Testament people sang it as a reminder of the greatness of God and the glory and to celebrate Him for what He has done. But what can this psalm teach us today about how we as Christians are to properly worship God? Well, there are several takeaways that we can learn. We can learn that the structure of our song should always be God-centered and not man-centered. We talked about that a second ago. We, we can learn that we should sing songs that declare of God's salvation and His glory and His marvelous works. We can also learn that true worship always requires something of us because the psalmist says in verse 8 that we are to bring an offering when we come into His courts. And so there should always be something that we bring as a, as a sacrifice, as an offering, and that's part of true worship. All of those are lessons we learn from Psalm 96. But there are two primary responses that this psalm shows us about the true worship of the righteous. And number one, we bow before Him in reverential submission. As the people of God, when we come to worship, we bow before Him in reverential submission. What could be the right and proper response 
that we should have when we are called into the courts of the one who alone is great and greatly to be praised. What should we do when we stand before the one who made the heavens and established the world? The right and proper response to such a powerful being could only be reverential submission. The psalmist uses the word fear twice or the concept of fear twice. In verse 4, he says our God is to be feared above all gods. And in verse 9, that we are to tremble before Him. And biblical fear is not just being afraid of God. It's not just recognizing that God is powerful and big and that He could could do bad things, harmful things to us if He should so will. That's not the kind of fear that we're talking about. Fear is a holy and rightful reverence for God for who He truly is. The Bible tells us that the fear of God is the beginning point of wisdom in our life. Proverbs 8 says the fear of God leads us to hate evil. Proverbs 14 says the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life so that one may turn away from the snares of death. And so our first response in worship is that the people of God should bow before Him in reverential submission. And worship is about gathering the people of God to come and bow and declare His glory and His worth personally and corporately. But we need to remember that worship doesn't stop there. Worship doesn't stop when we come into the building and we bow before Him and we sing songs to His glory. Because not only do we bow in reverential submission, but we boldly declare His glory to all peoples. Worship and the worship of the redeemed is about boldly declaring the glory of God to all peoples. You cannot properly read Psalm 96 and not see the missional urgency of declaring the glory of God to all the nations and all the peoples of this world. The psalmist says, Our God is great above all other gods. Therefore, our God alone deserves the worship of every person and every tribe. and He deserves the songs of, every, of people from every nation and tongue. All the nations of the earth are the rightful possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, all the peoples of the earth deserve a chance to hear the greatness of their King. But as John Piper wrote, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because there are billions of people today who cannot worship God because they do not know who He is and they do not know what He has done. And so because of this, true worship cannot end with us when we leave a congregational gathering on Sunday morning. But true worship propels us in the mission field to declare His glory to those who have not heard. See, there are still tens of thousands of people in our city who cannot properly worship our God because their sin still separates them from Him. And there are millions of people in our country who cannot worship King Jesus because they've never actually had a true gospel conversation with a follower of Jesus Christ. They see our religious stuff and they hear our righteous indignation, but for many of them they have not heard the gospel. And there are billions of people on our planet and thousands of unreached people groups who cannot properly sing the song of the redeemed this morning because they've never heard the gospel enough to reject it. And King Jesus deserves the worship of every single one 
of those billions and billions and billions of people. True worship is missional and true missions always leads people to worship. As John Piper wrote, worship is the fuel and goal of missions. And we cannot rest until all the peoples of this earth have had a chance to join in the worship song of the redeemed. But the reality is that you and I cannot worship what we do not know and we cannot worship what we do not value above all things. And so we can't lead people to worship if they've never trusted in Christ to begin with, if they've never heard the gospel, if they've never responded. So before we close out today, we want to give an opportunity for people to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll ask those who are seated here this morning to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a second. If you're in this place today, if you're gathered with us and you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you you came here this morning and you went through a, a worship experience where you sang songs that were on the screen, but the reality is that what you were singing was not something that came from your heart as a response to the worth and the glory and the value of God. It was simply emotion that you went through because you were told to do that. But in the course of today, God has awakened you to His worth and His value and His glory and the fact that you can be a worshiper of Him that you were created to be. And if today you've recognized that there's a problem between you and God, that your sin has separated you from Him, and that you want to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then today before you leave, I invite you to come see me and just say, Pastor Matt, I need to talk to you. I need to give my heart to Jesus. If you're watching on the live stream right now and and God has made you aware of the fact that there's something separating you and Him and that you cannot properly worship Him this morning because you've never truly surrendered your heart and life to Him, I invite you to do that today. And and on the screen, there's there's an email and a phone number that you can contact me if you'd like to talk to me more about that. But I encourage you today, do not leave this place or do not end this broadcast today without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you belong to Jesus Christ. And if you do belong to Him, then do not leave here today thinking that now that we have ended a corporate gathering that somehow or another we have stopped worshiping. And take the worship of your King into this world and declare His glory among the nations. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are great and greatly to be praised. That there is not one thing that we can praise today that is of worth more value and more glory than you. That you've given us an outlet and an opportunity to do that. That you've redeemed our souls. That you've changed us. That you've brought us from death to life so that now we we can turn away from those idols that we used to worship to worship the one true living God who we were created for. Thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that as your people have sung today and as we've looked to your word, God, that the hope of the gospel will stay burning in our hearts as we leave today. And help us to have conversations with people who who are worshipers, but they're worshiping the wrong things. Help us to have those conversations with them. And God, go before us and help us to declare your goodness and your glory and to lead them to, to know you. Father, we thank you for worship. We pray that you'll bring us back next week so that we can declare your glories as a a people once again. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.